Joyce Beatty almost doesn't require an introduction. She is, her reputation just precedes her uh, through her many high profile public service activities and the long list of legacy first that she had, um, she has accomplished over the years. Uh, most Ohioans identify her as a former Democratic <coughs> member of the Ohio, Ohio House of Representatives and as a sought after motivational speaker and businesswoman. There's just so many things she has done, and I don't want to detail all her accomplishments right now. I, I think at this point, I, she's, her reputation speaks for itself. Thank you. Thank you.
to read. And you saw all these books in the house. So I would pick up those books and I was just probably mispronouncing a lot of the words written in dialect, but it just seemed funny to me. And I would start doing what I thought was imitating him. And so early in my years, I discovered that I became very animated and very loud because when you're reading to yourself in your big house, you don't know how loud you are. So I decided that about 12 years old, I became a storyteller. I'd make up stuff, I'd talk to the bicycle, I'd talk to his picture on the wall. One day I even, they wore big collars in the late 1800s. One day I actually took one of the pieces and tied it around my neck and read the book like I was Paul Arns Dunbar. Um, needless to say, one day I heard my aunt coming down the steps and didn't lay the little scarf back appropriately and I was confined to an area and I never skipped over that rope again and I never pulled that bed down. But I am a big fan and give a lot of credit to Paul Arndt Dunbar uh, and his works. Uh, so I will read something in standard English from him and I may save that to the end and I will also uh, read something in uh, dialect from him. One of his favorites you've heard, probably read about, Liza, Liza. So I will probably uh, end with that. So where did I go from uh, Paul Arndt Dunbar and off to school and college and, and always being very dramatic, starting out as a theater major, that I always wanted to do two things. I wanted to publish my own book, thus in the late 80s, uh, a book called Writing for Free Spirit. So I thought I'd start with me. Uh, rather than end with uh, me. So here are some uh, short little things that comes from Joyce Beatty's writings of free spirit. Who am I? Who are you? Faceless are we, caught in captivity, searching to be free. Who am I? Who are you? A voice in the dark, silence without sound, and words that go unsaid. Memories of the dream that never come true. Who am I? Who are you? Someone we all know. Dig your way out to unknown destinies that lead to stars and lights of glow. Back to the trenches we go. Deep and dark, no place to roam, no home. Searching, searching. Searching and up we surface to get caught in between. Back to the trenches we go. This time, no lights, no blood. Back to the trenches we go. Have you ever stood in the dark looking for light, but only to find the night? And before you know it, it's day and you see. What strange control came over him? Little people, pitter, patter, Bitter pattern, little people, such an important matter. Up they grow to people we do and do not know. You and me, we, them, us, they, them, they, us, we. On what should we agree? Never seeming to know so plain and simple it should be. How about just you and me? And the last one. Old and gray, tired and weary, with little to say. No tomorrows, only today. Step by step, I calculated my end because I'm old and gray. Today is tomorrow, 
and there's no breath to set, no victory. I win. A new day today begins. Those are some of my thoughts from some of my writing, so I hope you enjoyed those, and later I'll tell you a little bit about how they came uh, about. Uh, Mari Evans, uh, a great friend, uh, I usually use this to get me inspired before I, I go to read or I go to deliver a lecture or, or something of significance, and it is, I am a black woman, tall as cypress strong, beyond all definition, still to find place and time and circumstance, assailed, impervious, indestructible. Look at me and be Now for some fun. I can't believe that I say it out loud for the first time in Cincinnati, Ohio, before 100 people at a luncheon where I was the guest speaker for an organization called Women's Alliance. The name of this probably doesn't mean to a lot of people outside of Cincinnati, that organization, but for me, it was huge. I said it before some of my best friends who would quiz me for the next two years. How is the book coming? I would give the same old answers coming slowly but surely. Some would nod and some would say good. Others wouldn't stop. They would dig deeper, question after question without taking a breath. How far along are you? How many pages will it be? Who's publishing it and when and where can we buy it? The truth of the matter, I had only wrote 20 pages when I announced the writing of this book. Since for me it was the first book, I had not talked to anybody about how do you write a book. I just started writing about my experiences. One of my greatest attributes was inventing stories and telling them in storytelling fashion. So how could I truthfully write about my real life and experiences? I thought I'll couple it with my skills. I'll tell a story. One day it hit me like a rock. I'll make it a selectology. So there you have it. I hope that you will enjoy the first few pages of my book, and we're going to call it a selectology. I will leave it to you to determine what's fiction and what's facts. So here we go. Early in my life, one of the great experiences as a little girl I had was growing up in the church. Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, choir practice on Saturday afternoon, and I couldn't even sing. All day on Sunday. I wasn't even a PK, a preacher's kid, but my mother, my grandmother, and all my aunts and great aunts were somehow married to a preacher or closely aligned with a minister or a deacon. Depending on who's giving the history of my grandparents, my father preached at the largest church. Some says he wasn't a preacher at all. He was just a head deacon who thought he was a preacher, and they allowed him to preach on Sunday. Or he was the best friend of the pastor who couldn't preach, and since granddaddy was loud, they let him preach. I decided to latch on to the preacher part of the church. That would make me the granddaughter of a Baptist minister. After all, anyone in those days could preach, so that didn't make it fiction if I got challenged. What's the difference anyway? He's dead and he died before I was born, so I was only relying on what others had told me. Plus what was fact was my grandmother lived in the church and acted like a preacher's wife, and my mother acted like a preacher's kid. And I loved the church and all the church activities. Speaking of church and activities, here's how the story begins. Girl, get up off that floor and get ready for bed. You know we have church in the morning. I love Saturday nights lying on the floor looking up at Grandmother Jackson. That's my mother's mother. As she told 
get ready for bed because I do Sunday morning would be an early wake-up call. Grandmother Jackson, who always got up a little early, extra early on Sunday mornings for church, you could tell time for Sunday morning by the smell that reached all the way up the stairs to my room of the air-flavored, coffee-brewing, sausage popping in the skillet, grits boiled, that's grits with cheese, fried potatoes, and scrambled eggs cooking. The fun part was for me, I got to get all dressed up. I had to find a hat that matched in color with what Grandmother Jackson was going to wear. You see, part of the Sunday ritual involved not repeating at least for one month the hat, the purse, the gloves that you wore to church. And she did love her hats, fancy hat boxes, and pieces of fur on her coat. Besides being the sister of the seamstress from Dinafail, now that's an expensive store in downtown Dayton, Ohio, where black folks weren't welcome to shop, gave her an extra advantage on what the fashions of the season would be. You see, Grandma Jackson was a savvy businesswoman. She was very pretty, petite in size, and very fair-skinned. At a quick glance, it was hard to tell what race she was. She could probably have passed, that means going for white and those things, if she wanted to, but she used her looks and her skills to build her wardrobe. She called it dressing up and going downtown. She would have her brother, you see my Uncle Jack, take her to the stores where rich people shop. You see, Uncle Jack owned the first black gas station in Dayton. In those days, it doesn't mean that that makes me sound old in those days. I'm even older when I tell you gas stations were really called filling stations. Anyway, here's how the game was played. On the third Thursday, Mr. Kettering, Kettering, Ohio, a wealthy man in town, brought his car in for service, like clockwork. The car was there for exactly three hours and 20 minutes. It really only took an hour and 20 minutes for Uncle Jack to service the car, but he needed the extra time for Grandpa. So you see, Uncle Jack put on Uncle Leonard's uniform from the downtown Biltmore Hotel, which was a fancy, shiny suit with the brightest gold buttons you have ever seen. He topped it off with a cap that looked identical to the caps that limousine drivers wore. Uncle Jack would drive the car and grandmother, and I would sit in the rear of the car. He would drive right up to the front of the store, just like the rich folks' drivers would do. The reason Grandmother knew how this worked, because her other son, Uncle Bobby, had been one of those drivers. Grandmother, a small, gentle-looking woman, only because she practiced at it, she, because I knew the rough side of her, like when she would holler at me or pop me on the back of my head to sit still when she was combing my hair. I had a lot of thick, wavy hair, and she called it horse's hair. She combed it with an iron, cold iron, straightening comb. That was supposed to be used to press black folks' hair. I didn't get my hair pressed because she thought it would make me have bad hair. But that's a whole other chapter on hair about itself. Back to the story. Uncle Jack would open the car door, stand back like a soldier, and grandmother would enter the store and walk straight over to the elevator. Grandmother smiles at the elevator operator. The operator, in a silent way, acknowledges grandmother immediately, resumes her tucked head position because black folks didn't look directly in the eyes of the white customers. The elevator operator, you see, was Mrs. Turner. She routinely went along with this charade 
because Aunt Flora did Mrs. Turner's French roll every Monday on her day off so her hair could be set to greet the white rich folks on Tuesday. Here's the good part of the story. Grandmother's roll was more than just going shopping. It was to look at the clothes, study the colors, the patterns, the direction of the lace on the collars. And believe it or not, she could and would take her little scissors and get a piece of that material from the inside of the garment. She would return home and Aunt says would make the garment. She was so good that Grandmother could return to the same store with the dress made by Aunt Sis and the clerk would say, oh my goodness, you look stunning in our dress. Oh, how fun it was to lay on the floor at night and hear the stories about dressing up and going downtown. But I knew if I didn't move fast, I would hear those footsteps. There was no carpet in the house, and the hardwood floors had a way of telling me somebody was coming. As I pushed up from the floor, there was Grandmother in front of me saying, Little girl, get up from the floor. I hope you enjoy the first part of my book. And now to Paul Marks Dunbar. As I told you earlier, it, it were written in standard English by him. It's called uh, a major. One of the things that you may or may not know about Paul Martin Dunbar, Paul Martin Dunbar did not live a very long life, but he did a lot in his window of, of time. Uh, growing up in, in Dayton, Ohio, he was friends with the Wright brothers. He, uh, was a well-educated man. His mother, Matilda, uh, who was a, a great friend of my great-great-aunt, uh, believed in children reading profusely. And so she would always have things available in the house. I just can't tell you about the plethora of books that surrounded the house. So when Pauline Dunbar uh, was a, a very young teenager, he had mastered most of the work that the, his friends in, in high school had accomplished. And, and he was inquisitive, and he hung around with some of the best and, and brightest folks in his community, which happened to, to be mostly white folks. So when he got to school, needless to say, he excelled very well. So when he went out after uh, finishing high school and going to college to do what most of us do, he would go to seek employment. Well, keep in mind, in those days, it was very difficult for a learned person oftentimes to get the same kind of employment uh, in areas where you couldn't really enter. So as he goes into the Calhoun uh, building to seek employment, you know that story. They did not hire him. He was not welcomed in the building. However, Elevator operators were traditionally, if not always, African-Americans. And so they hired him as the elevator operator. Well, this was a no-brainer for him. You know, going up and down every day running the elevator. So what did he do? He decided that he would read. But he was reading Shakespeare. And he was reading some of the same traditional books that the businessmen were reading or had read. And one day, a man said, the colored boy is reading Shakespeare. And so he could read it and he could quote it, but this man, who was a very kind man, had dialogue with him and encouraged him. And so he started to share his writings with him. And so that was kind of some of the, the early beginnings 
uh, Paul Arndt Stumper, and, and then it, it, it almost exploded, one could say, with his writings and his publishing, and the doors began to open, and he studied with some of the best learned folks. And then he fell in love, and although his marriage was uh, less than 10 years, I think it was about six years, if you notice in his writings along that period of time, um, early 1900s, there's a lot about love, and there's a lot about sadness, and there's a lot about environment, all written in standard English. When he writes about, almost as I write about my grandmother, and get up off the floor and hearing the stairs, you can take it back to life, things that maybe a grandmother would have said to him. So for example, in standard English, he, he has a poem that says, I know a man with a face of pain, but who is never kind to girls and boys and games and toys and even tired to find. When day goes down, they watch for him. He comes to place to claim he wears the crown of hungry town. The sand is When sparkling eyes, truth sleepy wise, the living lips when little heads nod toward the bed, we know the same thing. Same thing by Paul Life's trash. It may be mystery not to sing at all. And to go silent through the brimming day, it may be mystery never to be loved. But deeper grieves than these he set away. To sing the perfect song, and by a half tone lost the key. There's the potent sorrow, there's the sorrow, there's the grief. The pale, sad staring of life's tragedy. To have come near to the perfect love, not the hot, passionate, untempered youth that gives which lies aside his fancy and gives for us thy trusting, worshiping truth. This, this indeed, is to be a curse. For if we mortal, if we mortals love, or if we sing, we count our joys not by what we have, but by what kept us from having that perfect thing. Thing. Paul Arndt's number, many said that was about his wife. Uh, the love, what he couldn't keep, the losing of her. And, and I think as most writers, most of us, you, you write from your spirit, from your heart, from your experience. Uh, pitter-patter in my book was because I was sitting in a waiting room and some bad little kids were just running around and running around and then I thought pitter-patter, pitter-patter, when are they going to stop? But then I thought, this little child is going to grow up to be somebody we know or we don't know. So usually when you are sketching, as we call it, or, or just writing, you, you see the tree, you see the beautiful library, you see Orton Hall and thoughts just come uh, to mind. So think of that in, in this spirit, and, and let's have some fun. Liza, Liza, bless the Lord, don't you know the days are broad? If you don't get up, you scamp, there'll be trouble in this camp. Think you gonna sleep while I make your board and keep? That's a pretty howdy do. Don't you hear me, Liza? Bet if I come across that floor, you won't find no time to snow up. They got all the shining in while you sleep. Why is a sin? Ain't the candlelight enough to burn without that stuff? But do you know the morning's coming, burning up the daylight too? Liza, 
Interesting, uh, and we're thinking about uh, doing an exhibit. We actually have uh, a couple of his books signed by Matilda, his mother that she gave to uh, him. Uh, we also have some items of his clothes, booties, scarves. Uh, it, it was not unusual in, in those days to inherit things. Uh, so his mother, Matilda, would. Uh, do housekeeping for some of the wealthy people in, in Kettering, uh, which was a, a, would be like Columbus to Bexley, for example. You have a date for me, I, I mean. I was born in Dayton, Ohio, 1872, uh, passed away February 9th, 1906. Oh, six, okay, thank you. Um, he was 34, okay, I knew it was uh, early years. So, you would receive uh, gifts from the people that you would take care of. So uh, what was really interesting to me, my grand, my great aunt inherited some of the things that Matilda had inherited. She passed them on to my mother. My mother's not a fussy person, which means sterling silver, lacy things. It skipped a generation. So when I became, quote, of, of age, I inherited some sterling silver. I didn't know it was solid sterling silver until I became further of age when you start thinking about investment and having uh, things appraised and carrying them on, writers on your insurance. 
And so as I turned the uh, silverware over, they had three initials uh, engraved in it. You know, I'm, I'm into this family thing, so I'm looking for all the last name initials in my family, and, and I couldn't figure it out. So my Aunt Sis had not uh, passed. She lived to be 99 years old. So I, I went to her, and she said, oh, honey, you'll never figure out our heritage there. That's the where it was given to from some white person in Kettering. But the main thing of it is, it is a value, and it will teach you the culture of preparing your table. So I now have some silverware of someone that I know Paul Lawrence Dunbar's mother, Matilda, probably cleaned for or, or worked for that I will pass on, and, and hopefully not only the items, but the stories uh, will continue. Anybody else? Yes. Does Uh, yes, there is a call in some of our uh, homes that was recently, recently, in the last, I'm going to say, five or six years, uh, renovated and restored through city dollars uh, and city dollars. Uh, Ryan McLean, who was the mayor then, and the daughter of the legendary uh, legislator, C.J. McLean, uh, renovated that whole street where the house is, and she moved onto that street. So a lot of cities to the inner city, like for example, where our King Arts Lincoln Theater or the um, Urban League kind of core to the city is core to our uh, cultural uh, facilities. Okay. What's the name of the author? Yeah. Mari Evans, who is uh, phenomenal. Uh, she is... Um, a poet, and she is known from uh, her work with I Am a Black Woman. You, you will hear young students and people uh, read that part uh, of her uh, book. She too writes in um, standard English. She has a lot in uh, dialect. Uh, and again, you will hear parts, and, and I don't think this is only to African Americans. I, I think it's a, a writer's thing uh, that they write from within or from their life or from what they know oftentimes and then they move on to in integrating uh, other types of, of, of writing. For example, she said, to a child that was, I never knew your loneliness and knowing now I die. For so, so long, so desolate, so anguish eyes and dry spirit, bruised for love not given, knowledge that's realized with a bitter hemlock through the earth. A proper legacy for you, for loneliness, is also death and sorrow that must be gone. I mean, when, when you think about some of the, the sadness, and, and you think about their backgrounds and the things that they experience, I, I think it was typical to, to write of and from those experiences. 
Uh, I've chosen, uh, now that I'm several chapters beyond, that I, I had fun with the book. I, I tell the story of my grandmother, and, and then I go through a, a period of growing up, and, and I talk about those wonderful experiences. Uh, and, and while I've had sadness in my life, and all of those things I've been able to overcome. I, I talk briefly about a fun college experience and, and going away to college and having a, a full scholarship and, and looking at my mother's eyes as the oldest girl. So there we are uh, in um, Tennessee, and, and you can imagine you're there for the, the summer parents retreat to tell you all about what college is going to be like. And simple words, my mother said something like, and we will see you in December for Christmas. And you know, this is June. And I had never been away from home without my parents. And I had younger sisters that in, in our culture you really rear. They depended on, on me. And so there I am, a child at that era when you only were, uh, you only uh, talked or expressed your feelings when you were asked. So I took this big rest and I looked up at that man and in that big office that looked like this and I said, I'm not staying here. And my mother looked at me and I said, I'm not doing this college thing. And it was a long ride home, needless uh, to say, as we all cried, because I didn't think I could. It wasn't that I was afraid. I could not leave my younger sisters at home in the responsibility and the chores to be this far away. And thinking of not being home for all of the holiday things that we did, all of the culture. So I chose not to go to college. And I did not, and for us, money was clearly a problem. Uh, so I chose not to take the scholarship, not to go to school. Uh, this was a couple weeks before school was out. I went back to school. I was okay with that. No one had ever been to college. That was the first time I'd ever been in a, on a college campus in my life. So didn't, wasn't that great to me. It was just a whole lot of big stuffy offices and books. And we went back home, and uh, we were in uh, summer, and I was doing my little work job, and one day I came home, and uh, there was Mr. Lacey, the principal's car in my driveway. And I thought, I'm not even in summer school. I'm graduating in a week. What's this all about? And I figured he wanted to hear me. I gave the class speech, and I was uh, second in my class to graduate from high school. So I thought, oh, that's what you will be practice before next week. But you know when you open that door and you walk in, and your mother gives you that eye, and your father's foot is just, you know, like I could just jump up and snatch you. I said, I didn't do it. Whatever it was, I did not do it. And so my mother said, I'm going to ask you one question. What happened to the seven applications for the other colleges that Mr. Lacey gave to you? Well, I knew what the answer was. We did not. It cost $7 to put in each one of those applications. And I knew my parents did that. And so I sat there and I thought, okay, in nanoseconds, lie or tell the truth? Well, tell the truth is always better. So I said, I didn't think we had the money to do it, so I never brought them home. And that was the truth. Well, that made my mother very tearful, and it was the right answer to tell the truth. To make a long story short, you know, school started in, colleges uh, started in September. Mr. Lacey came back, and C.J. McLean, who was a legislator, served on the Higher Education Committee in the State House, picked me up and took me to Central State one day after school started. And uh, it was probably one of the best experiences in my life. It was 45 minutes from my home. 
Uh, I stayed on campus, so I had the dormitory, and uh, I stayed in an honor storm, and there was this great, it, it looked like a play team, and I had no idea why it was there, but it had this big rail, and it was an older building, and I would go get my sisters, and I would bring them up to the campus, and they would spend Friday, Saturday, and Sundays with me to give my mother a break. And we would put covers in there, and everybody on the floor helped babysit because, I mean, they were children, children. And we did that for my whole first uh, quarter. Uh, I still took care of my brothers and sisters, so I, I, I write about that experience. So I write about not being able to talk and walk for almost a year, being in the hospital, uh, having a cerebral brain figure out how to get all across the city and, and everything. But it is uh, good to be able to walk and talk. I store my words up in nanoseconds. The things that happen automatically for you don't happen uh, to me. Great therapists, speech therapists, and I'll tell you one last story that's uh, in my book that deals with her. People seem to, to like it. Um, I was in an inpatient therapy home where there were 18 of us, all of us and, and I was probably from the end of the, the most aggressive with the young folks, the 18-year-olds, the children with strokes, because they were more determined. The people who were in my age group, at that time, I was 50 years old. So at, at that time, I was in the older group. So the 50 to the 80-year-old people had what we call stroke group, which means you drooled and you had the stroke group. So you sat at the table with the droopers, and they gave somebody handed a straw, and they found the right spot, put it in your mouth, and so we did that. So I decided in my brain that I was gonna move away from the droop table to the people who had the stroke that only affected their legs and, and arms, but I was a drooper. So uh, being the kind of resourceful person I was, I thought, well, what if I double up on all the physical therapy and the speech therapy and maybe it could help me? So I became a candidate for a trial, you know, nothing to lose. And so the trial involved the electric shock. So when you went in, they marked up your, your face and they put all these dots, 25 of them to be exact, in five groups of five. And so when the therapist comes in, uh, this very nice looking blue-eyed gentleman, and you know, I'm like, this is really easy on the eyes, ladies. And so, you know, I'm kind of like, ooh, I drew a good straw. He's bright and young and cute and big blue eyes. And he was telling me, just focus on these blue eyes. That was an easy task. I mean, he's a young guy. You know, I was going to probably do his mother, but it was still fun. Then he reached over and he put on these things that, that looked like oven mitts. And so then he had a thing that looked like what the um, umpire, the catcher, where so he's strapping the phone up. And so he's got all these cords and things coming out. And you put your head in the neck brace and you smile. Now, I might have been sick, but I wasn't stupid. <laughs> so I said to him something very profound, like, is this going to hurt? <laughs> and in his nice medical way, he said, yes. Not how much? Or, and so, you know, what the next question is, 
A lot or not much? He says, how much do you know about baseball? Hardball. And so he said, think of when they tell you that bat at 125 miles is hitting that hard stick. That's about how much it's going to hurt. At that point, and I was spastic anyway, I said, oh, no, unhook me. I'm not doing this. I'll be a drooper the rest of my life. So he hooks me up, and obviously I said, okay, I, I can do this. I'm strong. I'm tough. I can do this. And I really believe that I started thinking about all my requirements, like lies and lies. I mean, I was quoting everything to distract my mind and act like. He hooked me up, he hit my face in the first five seconds, and it felt like my head went over there and hit the wall and came back. Tears literally popped out of my eyes that I could see them splatter up on his face. That is, and it was just like he gave me that. He said, do you want to do this? I said, uh, you know, I'm crying, and I'm like, no, and I'm passing me, this is ridiculous. Then he says, Matt Moore, your mouth went from here to out like this with hands from your mirror. They were able to get some sensation because it's in your face, it's all on elasticity and, and the muscles, and there was a positive response. So I went from a drooper to a slider. I don't know what it was going to be. There wasn't a, a group for that. And so I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm like, and, and this happened over time. And I'm a fun person, as you can tell. So, you know, now I'm a drooper and I'm like this. So I took some red lipstick and put my lipstick on because only once a week your parents and husband could come to see you. So I put it all around and then I drew it out like this. And I sat up in the chair to wait for my family to come. My mother did not find that funny at all. At all. My sister, my baby sister, thought it was hilarious. She said, look what good spirit she is. And she's no longer a drooper. She got her wish. So we cleaned up my face. I go back for the next treatment, it tells me it only gets stronger. So then I go from a slider out to like, hey, it's almost normal, just looked a little funny. But the pain was so great that I thought, I don't know, if he convinced me to do it, I had all five of the 25 clusters and were right at the end. And so then I started thinking, you know, one day I had a bad headache, and I said, are there any side of me? I should have thought of this, you know, five days ago. So then I started saying we had one more session left. And at that time we knew I was a good candidate and everything was gonna come come back to the point. And so I said to him, you know, this is electric shock and you know, your brain and will there be um, any and this is in the book, I'm going to explain why, will there be any side effects? And so he says, and this is a one word doctor. He says, yes, almost like will it hurt? Yes. So, okay, come on, go through this drill. Okay, what are the side effects? He says, well, and he pauses. He said, the treatment has been known, pauses again, to take all the wrinkles out of your face. <laughs> and I said, can you do the side? <laughs> and so, that's a funny story I, I tell to stroke patients, especially uh, women and, and older uh, women. Uh, because that was 10 years ago, and I am now talking and, and walking, and uh, I've had uh, with little difficulty uh, 10 great years of, of health and wellness. Got time for maybe one more question, and we will have met your timeline, and I've been my storytelling, I've read poetry, I've told you about my book, read from, uh, my book, and uh, there was uh, experiences uh, in there when I became the house leader.
She rushes out the store and she finds every book and every tape that she can get on the president. So she calls me and she said, have you seen this thing? He's on a bus and he's got his whole campaign and she's watching it. And a couple hours later, she calls me back. She's screaming because she had a heart attack watching this stuff. She says, oh my God, you didn't tell me. I said, mother, guess what? You're in the president's video. They're in a campaign room and he says, there's one person that we have to go and talk to and they're in Ohio. And the staff returns and says, and they go to a board, so it's not only my name, and he writes Joyce Bailey, Columbus, Ohio board. My mother went out and bought on a limited income. 50 of these videos that are $24.99. So she could send it. So that's a funny story. Uh, in each page, in each section, there's a picture. So when I talk about on the floor, we found a picture of me laying on the floor in my grandmother's house. So we have sent over to um, a video person to, when that comes up, to stop that frame and copy it. So with the Joyce baby on the board, so that's on the page and in the book we found. I didn't take a lot of pictures, uh, but there is a picture of me all wheelchaired up. And, and so we have, it's a fun, easy to read book. We are, now I have a, a book writer working with me and magical numbers, 27 chapters, and we're on 19. So we are, we're almost took some pictures of me in front of Orton Hall for something else. So we had Orton Hall, Phil has captured me behind all kind of podiums. Uh, so we have the last chapter's frame. There is a whole chapter on The Ohio State University with framed pictures and some of the things I've done, including most recently something that uh, Phil took a leadership role and that was our journey to, to Ghana. So it ends with a picture of me and a, a young girl giving me flowers and there's some words from my heart about flowers of life and this child and what we grow uh, to be. So there we are uh, right about at 4 o'clock. Thank you. You are a great audience. I hope I gave you uh, something that you had not heard, something that would make you smile or laugh or something that was a little bit enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you.